And if there are children who would like to go to preschool church, this is the time. I've always enjoyed working as part of a team, whether it be a cast member for a drama production or a member of a marching band or choir or a member of a pastoral team. For, some, for, for me, there's something very energizing about working with people who are committed to the same goal, getting in there together and working hard together. Now, I've also seen the flip side of teamwork. It is not very fun to work together when not all the team members are all on the same page about where they're headed and, and how they're going to get there. And when that's the case, you too often find yourselves working at cross-purposes. Well, as I read this morning's scripture passage from Mark 8, it struck me that Jesus knew a lot about these kinds of joys and challenges. He himself was a team leader. He'd handpicked his team of 12 disciples early on in his ministry. They'd been working and they'd been learning together for some time. But now the journey is just to become more difficult. They're taking a turn from Galilee toward Jerusalem, from immense popularity toward rejection, toward the cross. And Jesus needs to know, do his disciples really know what this journey is all about? Are they on the same page with him? Are they together? Are they together about where they're going and how they're going to get there? Most importantly, are they willing to follow the leader even when the going gets tough? So, Jesus holds a team meeting right there on the road as he and his disciples travel together to Caesarea Philippi. And he opens the conversation by asking, who do people say that I am? Well, his disciples are in touch with local sentiment. They're able to say that some think he's John the Baptist, others think that he's Elijah, and still others think that he's one of the prophets. And then Jesus asks them, who do you say that I am? Well, Peter, who never seems to lack for words, has a ready answer. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. Yes, I can hear Jesus sighing. But do you know what that means? There is apparently some doubt in Jesus' mind that they do. So he makes it painfully clear. What does it mean to be the Messiah? It means great suffering and rejection. It means getting killed. And it means resurrection. Well, as you can imagine, this is not exactly the message that the disciples want to hear. In fact, they are so put off by the idea that the Messiah would suffer and die and, and be defeated that they don't even hear the part about resurrection. 
Jesus' version of the Messiah is so very contrary to their expectations. The Messiah was supposed to be a winner. The one sent by God to come in and take over and free his people and establish a new kingdom. That's what the Messiah was supposed to be about. Well, Peter, he can't contain himself. He can't just sit there and take it. What Jesus has said is outrageous. And Jesus needs to be set straight. So Peter takes Jesus aside and he rebukes him. Now, rebuke is a strong word. It's the word used in the New Testament for silencing demons. Maybe Peter thinks that Jesus is talking crazy because he's possessed by a demon that needs to be exercised. Or perhaps Jesus' words trigger such a high level of anxiety in Peter that Peter must simply stop Jesus, must make him stop. But Jesus isn't about to be stopped. In his response to Peter, we hear some of Jesus' harshest words in all the Gospels. Get behind me, Satan. Oh, the forcefulness of that response and the perception that Peter's words are of Satan suggests that Jesus is tempted by Peter's words. It would be so much easier to become king than to follow this road of suffering. Why not take the easy way out? Yet in the face of this temptation, Jesus affirms what he knows to be his calling. He will faithfully follow God's way to the end, even though it will mean suffering and death. Now, understandably, this message is hard for Jesus' disciples to hear. But what they hear next is perhaps even harder. Jesus goes on to say that this, his costly calling has implications for those who want to follow him. If anyone wants to become my followers, he says, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now, my guess is that these words are equally hard for most 21st century hearers, followers to hear. Deny yourself? Now, you've got to be kidding. I mean, these days, we're supposed to satisfy ourselves. Do what feels good. Look out for ourselves. Look out for number one. And take up your cross? Well, I venture to say that none of us here have ever witnessed a crucifixion. But we have an idea that crosses do have something to do with suffering and lots of it. So when we hear the invitation to take up our cross, our first response probably is, uh, no thank you. 
Yet cross-bearing and denial of self, says Jesus, is what following is all about. Okay. Well, suppose that it is. We can still ask, well, what does Jesus really mean when he asks us to deny ourselves and take up our cross in order to follow him? Well, let's look briefly at that denial of self piece. What does it mean to deny oneself? Some people think that denying oneself means to belittle, to neglect, to even hate ourselves, to, to let ourselves get walked over like a doormat. Now, is this what Jesus is calling us to do? I hardly think so, since Jesus also asks us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. When Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, he is not asking us to hate ourselves. He is asking us to shift our priorities. He's asking us, who is the God in your life? Is it me or is it you? Is your life built around protecting yourself and grabbing onto whatever you think will bring you happiness and security? Or is it built on your commitment to follow me even when following comes at great personal cost? Jesus says, the cost may end up being the cross. Now, for us, the cross is primarily a religious symbol. Some of us wear necklaces with crosses. Sometimes you see crosses hanging in churches, a symbol. But not so for Jesus and his followers. For them, the cross was a method of execution, like the electric chair is for us. That made it a symbol of torture, of death, of shame. You see, people who were crucified died slow, agonizing deaths. For several days, they would hang in great pain, slowly suffocating, totally exposed, with no possibility of scratching an inch or swatting away a stinging insect. Add to that the taunts and insults of passers-by. The end result was that crucifixion carried out by the Romans was not only a very efficient form of punishment, it was also a very effective means of intimidation. It meant to strike fear into the heart of anyone who witnessed it. It meant to communicate, folks, it doesn't get much worse than this. Watch yourselves. The next time, it could be you. Well, with this background in mind, it becomes evident that when Jesus talks about crosses, he is talking about serious stuff. Jesus is not naive. He knows that a life lived in faithfulness to God will lead him to that cross. It will lead him to torture and it will lead him to death. Knowing this, he still chooses this path of faithfulness. And 
he invites those of us who want to be his followers to follow in his footsteps to that same place. Wow, what an invitation. I mean, if Jesus was hoping it would attract a lot of new followers, I'm sure the results were disappointing. Jesus apparently didn't know much about marketing strategy. If he really wanted to appeal to his would-be followers, he'd sugarcoat his message a bit, just a bit. Talk up the benefits, play down the cost. But then again, attracting would-be followers doesn't seem to be Jesus' primary concern. Living a life of faithful integrity is. He wants to be clear with his disciples about what he's about. He wants them to know up front what it means to follow him. He says, if you want to be my followers, I want you to be my followers, but you need to know that there's some cost involved here. If you follow me, you may end up following me to the cross. The cross is a hard sell for most of us. And why shouldn't it be? Not only do most of us have a gut reaction against hardship and suffering, it's often contrary to what we believe about the Christian faith. I remember attending a resourcing event led by Kenda Creasy-Dean. Some of you may know her. She's a professor of youth, church, and culture at Princeton Seminary, Theological Seminary. And in one of her sessions, she talks about four myths of Christian spirituality. First myth, that it's about progress. Second, that it's about success. Third, that it's about results. And four, that it's about certainty. I resonated with what she was saying. Sometimes we think that faith is about having all the answers, about being blessed materially and spiritually, about being protected from misfortune and pain. And then along comes this morning's scripture passage to disturb and to challenge our notion that faith is about being comfortable. Along comes this scripture text to invite us from self-centered faith to Christ-centered faith. It dares to suggest that it's not about us. And it's not about us enlisting Jesus to be who we want him to be for the sake of our agenda. It's about Jesus and our willingness to be who he wants us to be for the sake of his agenda. It's about following in his footsteps. It's about following the leader. Jesus suggests that following may be costly. And he's right. History is borne it out. The earliest Christians in Rome followed Jesus to the Colosseum where they were torn apart by hungry lions. Our Anabaptist forebears followed Jesus to torture chambers and then to human bonfires where they were burnt at the stake. Martin Luther King Jr. followed Jesus into a hotbed of hate and violence 
where his family was threatened and his house was bombed and his own life was taken. But you know, these are not the only people for, who have suffered for what they believe in. The legacy continues today. The men who flew planes full of people into the World Trade Towers 11 years ago this week, on September 11th, were willing to die for a cause beyond themselves. Military personnel all over the world are recruited and trained to die for what they believe to be the greater good. What then shall we say? That these persons too are following the way of the cross? They know what it means to sacrifice their very lives to a cause beyond themselves. They know what it means to follow the leader. But which leader? Perhaps this is a question we really need to consider very seriously during this election season. Perhaps not so much which leader out there should we choose, but which leader in the midst of all the choices out there, which leader? in the midst of our choosing, will we follow? There's something really big at stake during this, and perhaps in every presidential election. And I'm not talking about who wins and who loses. What's at stake here are matters of faith, are matters of trust, hope, ultimate loyalty. The fact of the matter is billions, and I mean billions of dollars, are being spent to capture not only our votes, but something deeper, something far deeper than that. They're meant to capture our allegiance. And as we're bombarded by promises of hope commingled with messages of fear and vicious, vicious divisiveness, we are being urged we're being tempted to place our hope for wholeness and for well-being, and to place our hope really in the, for, in, uh, for the salvation of this world on particular candidates, parties, ideologies. My friends, this is misplaced trust against which scripture warns. Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. It comes from Psalm 146. Misplaced trust is dangerous. In the words of Mennonite Church USA moderator Dick Thomas, there is a danger that our political leanings in any direction may shape our understanding of faith and life more deeply than the Bible and the life and teachings of Jesus. The danger is that we may be following a leader other than Jesus. So how do we guard against this temptation? The answer is pretty simple, really. We go back to Jesus. 
We take our cues from him. We look to Jesus for our orientation about how we see and how we engage the world. But the thing is, when we look at Jesus, we see a leader leading from and also toward a very different place than our current and our potential and future political leaders, whoever they may be, whichever political party they represent. In Jesus, we see a leader who rejects dominating power, who links his future to the weak and to the vulnerable, and who loves even enemies. We see a leader whose way is the cross. We, like Peter, may be scandalized by this idea. I mean, in today's world, this approach is viewed as impractical, naive, ineffective, and unwise. But Jesus is insistent. The way of the cross is the way that ultimately leads to life. And it is on this path that Jesus will lead us. Are we ready to go there with him? This path, though it ultimately leads to life, is sometimes hard. Really hard. Following it is sometimes very costly. I I am convinced that we need companions on this journey to encourage us and to help us find our way. It is too hard. It is too hard to do it on our own. And so I am grateful, so grateful, to be part of a faith community and part of a denomination that takes seriously our call to follow Jesus, that takes seriously our call to give Jesus our full allegiance in the face of so many other competing loyalties. In the spirit Mennonite Church USA has recently issued us all an invitation. Calling this election season a season of temptation. The leaders of our denomination write, and here I'm going to quote. Jesus was led into the desert by the Spirit for his own season of temptation. The promises of influence and power that he faced and rejected remind us of the political promises made today. We invite you and your community to follow Jesus' example in this time of temptation and engage in prayer and in fasting during this election season. We offer this invitation as a spiritual discipline of deepening our allegiance to Jesus. Fasting can loosen our attachment to actions and attitudes that compete for our allegiance. Prayer brings us closer to Christ, transforms our minds, purifies our hearts. Whether or not we cast a ballot in November, and regardless of whom we might vote for, let us emphatically declare that our ultimate allegiance is not to a candidate, platform, 
or party, but to Jesus Christ. Let our words, intentions, and actions clearly demonstrate that each day we seek to follow Jesus' example. End of quote. Yes. Let our words, intentions, and actions clearly demonstrate that Jesus is our leader, the one that we choose to follow. Even though, and even when, his ways are at odds with the ways of the world. Even when our following leads us with Jesus to the cross. And when we're afraid, may we know deep in our hearts that we are held by a love that is bigger than our fears. By the love that lived in Jesus and brought him back to life. Nothing can separate us from this love. Not death. Not life. Not the powers of this world. Not things present. Not things to come. This is a love that gives strength when we are weak. Courage when we're afraid. Hope when we are ready to despair. And this love gives us a song. No storm can shake our inmost calm when to this rock we're clinging. Since love is Lord of heaven and earth, how can we keep from singing? May this love go with us, strengthen us, give us courage as we together seek to follow our leader.